Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 4, The First Babylonian Dynasty. So let's have a catch up. The first ancient society of Mesopotamia is the early dynastic period Sumerians, who lived in southern Mesopotamia after the Jemdet-Nazir period ended in around 2900 BCE. Sumerian city-states developed healthily for over 500 years using trade and production to enhance the general wealth of the region, even though the capital city would move around according to which ruler was able to gain control of the empire of city-states. Sargon the Great led an Akkadian uprising in the north and marched down into Sumer, taking the city-states one by one and establishing an Akkadian empire from around the year 2334 BCE. This would last for around 150 years before relatively uncultured and nomadic Guti people invaded from the area of the Zagros Mountains in the northeast in around 2200 BCE. There followed almost 100 years of unstructured rule whereby the city-states of southern Mesopotamia were able to rebuild and ultimately a Sumerian renaissance emerged in the city of Ur in around 2111 BCE and the Guti were ejected from the region. The Neo-Sumerian Empire was represented by the third dynasty of Ur and lasted for around a hundred years before nomadic Amorites from the west and their repeated attacks and raids weakened the empire enough that the Elamites could destroy Ur and remove the king, leaving a power vacuum in the region after 2004 BCE. These dates are guessed on the basis of artefacts and documents which give us clues about the years. The thing is that years were not recorded as we know them today. If Or was destroyed in 2004 BCE, then we would have to assume that someone recorded that fact and recorded the year. So we would assume that whoever recorded the year would have to have known that it was 2004 BCE, which is impossible. So 2004 BCE is guessed through the study and connection of artefacts and documents. However, they can be interpreted in more than one way. Another chronology, called the Short Chronology, suggests that the Third Dynasty of Ur ended in 1940 BCE. But we could spend an entire podcast arguing the pros and cons of each suggested chronology. 
We're not going to do that. I'm simply going to use the middle chronology of the ancient Near East, which puts the Elamite destruction of Ur to the year 2004 BCE. The aftermath of the fall of Ur. Those less cultured nomadic tribes from the west of Mesopotamia were Semitic speakers. Originally, the first Westerners to move in were the Akkadians. The Akkadians established themselves in Mesopotamia and were then, in turn, troubled by more Western Semitic peoples who we know as the Amorites. The Amorites were themselves comparatively nomadic peoples but they were organised enough to be an increasing threat to their Mesopotamian neighbours. When all was overrun by the Elamites, there was a power vacuum that the Amorites exploited. The language of Sumer was still Akkadian, since it supplanted the Sumerian language over the course of the previous 300 years since Sargon the Great had taken control of the region. These Amorite tribes that had effectively moved into the region had little trouble with the Akkadian language being Semitic speaking themselves. But it is also believed that there was no cohesiveness within the Amorites. They would happily plunder from each other if necessary. It is believed that they occupied the city-states of Mesopotamia and that the region was fragmented since they had defected from the dynasty of Ur before the invasion. The last king of that third dynasty of Ur that once had great kings such as Ur-Namu and Shulgi was Ibi-Sin. An official who worked for Ibi-Sin while he was still the king was Ishbi-Era. Ishbi-Era, unlike Ibi-Sin, was of Semitic heritage. Over time, Cultural differences between Ibisin and Ishbi-Era brought about tensions between the two men. And as Ibisin's kingdom began to fall apart, Ishbi-Era was determined to distance himself from his king rather than stand alongside him. Ultimately, as we already know, the Elamites invaded Or and captured Ibisin and took him away, never to be seen in Mesopotamia again. The third dynasty of Ur was over, and also so were the Sumerian dynasties. The Sumerians, who had previously been ousted by the Semitic Akkadians, had managed to get back into power, albeit as a neo-Sumerian empire, but now the region was going to be run by peoples of Semitic culture for the foreseeable future. As mentioned before, Ishbi-Era, a former official of the Neo-Sumerian king, was of Semitic origins and had also defected from the Neo-Sumerians. When the Neo-Sumerian Empire was finished, Ishbi-Era already had the influence of the city-state of Isim. By this time, and he was able to spread his power of influence out from his centre he would assume influence over the city-states of Nippur, Uruk and Eridu, while other kings 
would have little influence over more than their city-state by comparison. The king of Larsa, named Neplenum, is an example of this. Ishbi Era would in turn have to deal with those less cultured people who caused the whole problem in the first place. Those Elamites who had sacked Or were ultimately sent packing again by Ishbi Era, who gained influence over the ruined city of Or. And he would also push the Amorites back towards the west again. The Old Assyrian Empire It is quite important to our chronological story that we now introduce a region which we haven't really put much focus on since the first volume when it was home of the Hasuna culture. The Hasuna culture lived in northern Mesopotamia but on the Tigris River which is the easternmost of the two rivers. So it was further north than what would become the centre of the Akkadian Empire. Assyria gives its name to the study of ancient Mesopotamia, which we call Assyriology. We believe that it does indeed have the same etymological roots as the modern country of Syria, and we can see that Assyria takes its name from what would become its capital city, Assur. Assur had a good strategical geographical location on the banks of the Tigris, making it a good stop-off point for any groups of people heading north, including Akkadians and Sumerians, who undoubtedly brought wealth and culture to the settlement. However, it would have been kept subjugated to its powerful southern neighbours. By the mid-3rd millennium BCE, we know through the king lists that Assur was being ruled by a monarch and those monarchs appeared to have Semitic names. So they likely had historical connections with the Akkadians and Amorites, but not so much with the Sumerians. If we compare mid-3rd millennium BCE Assur to Ur, however, we know that Ur was a place of wealth and riches, but the kings of Assur were reportedly living in tents, so there is a, an apparent and notable difference. The Akkadians were initially successful in subjugating the Assyrians when they established their empire in the 24th century BCE, possibly due to the Semitic connection. However, when the Akkadian Empire fell apart, the Assyrians established independent rule which was only interrupted briefly by the Neo-Sumerians of the 3rd dynasty of Ur, who subjugated Assur as pretty much the northernmost border of their territory before the dynasty was ultimately crushed. After this period, the Assyrians were allowed the opportunity to settle down and build their economy independently. They would do this by establishing trade links, but they knew that precious metals and stones were going to be coming from the mountainous terrains to the north, such as the Taurus Mountains. Therefore, the Assyrians set up trading posts, and one of the finest examples is at Kultepe, in modern-day Turkey, where ancient texts have been found showing Assyrian administration of the town there. It was an Assyrian outpost called Kanesh. It was through such outposts that Assyrians were building their wealth and influence 
away from the prying eyes of the South, which was still in political turmoil and overcoming climatic setbacks such as droughts, which would stunt the economy of the region. Shamshi Adad the First. Fast forward to the year 1815 BCE by the middle chronology and Assyria had been slowly growing unchallenged for over 200 years. The capital city was a well fortified city state called Assur and trade routes were healthily established across Anatolia especially in the northwest. The king of Assur was Erisham II, who was the son and successor of Naram-Sin of Assyria, not to be confused with Naram-Sin of Akkad, who we met in the second episode of this volume. Not a great deal is known about Erisham II, but it does seem like after six years of his reign, he was usurped by an Amorite. The Amorite's name was Shamshi Adad, and he may have come back to avenge the fact that his own kingdom based at the city-state of Ekalatum, which we have never located, was overrun, perhaps even by the Assyrians themselves. Shamshi Adad came back to reclaim his home at Ekalatum, and then went onwards to claim the throne of Assyria and therefore start a new Amorite dynasty. Back in episode 2, we speculated about the downfall of the Akkadian Empire, possibly being affected by a major aridification event, which led to the settlement at Tel Lelan being abandoned, and left unoccupied for around three centuries. Shamshi Adad rediscovered the site, and changed its name from Shekhna to Shubat Enlil, in reference to Enlil, the Mesopotamian god of the atmosphere. Shubat Enlil thrived under Shamshadadad. Great temples and palaces were built there, and thousands of people lived within the city walls. This episode is supposed to be about the emergence of the Babylonians. So let's go back to the story of the aftermath of the third dynasty of all. Isin Lhasa. Now, by the 18th century BCE, Shamshi Adad was in control of a large and impressive Assyrian empire in northern Mesopotamia. Two centuries earlier was when Ishbi-Era had expelled the foreign invaders out of Sumer in southern Mesopotamia. So let's go back and bring the southern Mesopotamian story up to date with northern Mesopotamia. The one thing that Ishbi-Era did after the fall of the third dynasty of Ur was to bring stability back to the region. It was no longer a powerful connection of city-states but rather the foreign Amorite and Elamite invaders had been repelled. Ishbi-Era himself was of Semitic origin, the same as the Akkadians and the Amorites, but Ishbi-Era was much more civilised than the Semites who had been raiding and sacking Sumerian lands and cities. 
although Ishbi Era had managed to restore some kind of sensible order to the region, the city-states themselves generally tended to favour independence as opposed to unifying, as they did under the kings of Or. In fact, the city of Or would be fought over by other city-states wishing to bring it under its influence. How times had changed. Ishbi Era's kingdom was based in the city-state of Isin. Isin was not a new city-state, but had not had any pivotal role to play in the political direction of the region before now. So therefore, there was a kingdom of Isin, which was first ruled by Ishbi Era, and would go on for the next 200 years. In the meantime, a man called Naplanum would set up his own kingdom at the city of Larsa. We don't really know anything about Naplanum or Larsa before this period, but we do know that the kingdom of Larsa was also around for a couple of hundred years. This would lead us into what some refer to as the Isin Larsa period of southern Mesopotamia, which was essentially created in the ruins of the third dynasty of Ur during the 20th century BCE. If we follow the known story of these two kingdoms of Isin and Larsa through the 20th century BCE and into the 19th century BCE, we can establish that Larsa's influence became greater, where Isin was the most dominant and influential city of southern Mesopotamia initially. During the reign of King Gunganum of Larsa, things would alter. Gunganum would originally have successful campaigns against the Elamites in the east, which would put him in a position to take the nearby city of Or from under the influence of Isin and to become under the influence of Larsa. Gunganum, a man of Amorite origin, would finally consolidate Larsa, which was now the main player in Sumer. Isin would remain in the shadows of Larsa. It was during this period that a new local power would emerge to the north of Isin, at a little-known town in the heart of what was once the Akkadian Empire, although we do know that the kings on this new kingdom were Amorites. The new kingdom was centred at this town, which was called Babylon, and would soon gather Dilbat and Kish into its area of influence. Due to its geographical location, it served well as a buffer state between the ambitious Larsa in the south and the powerful Assyria to the north. The Rise of Babylon It was in around 1822 BCE that Rimsin assumed the throne of Larsa, taking over from his brother. Rimsin wanted to stamp his authority on the region and launched attacks on the kingdoms of Isin and Babylonia. So we can describe Larsa under Rimsin as the main power of Sumer. Rimsin was relentless in his expansionist ambitions and brought Uruk under his influence before launching a full-scale invasion of Isin in 1797 BCE. 
Rinsin would ultimately take the capital city of Isin in the same year that a very important historical figure would ascend to the throne of the Babylonians. That man was called Hammurabi and initially it does seem that Hammurabi's relationship with Rimsin was more diplomatic than aggressive. This meant no assistance for Isin and therefore the kingdom of Isin fell to Larsa and the kingdom of Isin which had risen from the ruins of the third dynasty of Ur was finished. So now Rimsin had created a small empire of his own but as with most instances where two powers are too close to one another this now meant that Rimsin's Larsa was becoming a direct threat to Hammurabi's Babylon. When Rimsin refused to support Hammurabi in his conflicts with the Elamites, Hammurabi recognised this as a division and decided that Rimsin had to go. Hammurabi laid siege to Larsa for six months and eventually the city fell. Rimsin attempted to flee but was captured and imprisoned. Larsa came under Babylonian rule and Rimsin died a captive sometime after 1763 BCE. While Hammurabi was asserting his authority in southern Mesopotamia, things were moving along in northern Mesopotamia. If you recall, earlier in the podcast we described how an Assyrian empire had emerged centred on the city of Assur. The Amorite Shamshi Adad usurped the Assyrian throne and then made Assyria the centre of an empire at a new capital city called Shubat Enlil at Tel Leilan. Shamshi Adad's large kingdom was incredibly hard to defend with enemies on all sides and all very interested in the wealth of his successful kingdom. In Shamshi Adad's old age, he struggled to maintain his kingdom and after his death in 1776, it became almost impossible to defend. One of the kingdoms which exploited the weakness of Shamshiadad's kingdom after his death was Eshnuna, which was a kingdom that was the buffer between Assyria and Hammurabi's Babylon. Before Hammurabi had dealt with his rivals in southern Mesopotamia, he had turned his attentions northwards by firstly conquering Eshnuna and then moving northwards towards Assyria. Hammurabi was very good at selecting his friends and his enemies while expanding the Babylonian Empire. Hammurabi would use a clever mixture of diplomacy and battle to gain dominance over the Assyrian lands and when he conquered Larsa in 1763 BCE the first Babylonian dynasty was at its peak. The Code of Hammurabi Now, in the last episode, we briefly discussed the discovery of some 5,000-year-old law codes that had been commissioned by one of the kings of Ur during its third dynasty. The most famous of all ancient Mesopotamian law codes is the one commissioned by Hammurabi himself. At the beginning of the 20th century, a basalt still was excavated 
which contained the law code in the Akkadian language in the cuneiform script. The most famous quote in the code is the one that says, If a man destroy the eye of another man, they shall destroy his eye. If one breaks a man's bone, they shall break his bone. If one destroy the eye of a free man, or break the bone of a free man, he shall pay one gold miner. If one destroy the eye of a man's slave, or break a bone of a man's slave, he shall pay one half his price. As with the previous law code discoveries, we can see that the status of the individual in these societies is very significant. Slaves had clearly less human value than citizens and freemen, but we could determine this from the previous codes too. There is also a difference between the sexes. Men would be spared the kind of punishments that women would receive for infidelity, for example. Men would be allowed to play away, whereas women were to be tossed into the Euphrates. Coming of age was also a factor. If a house was to collapse and kill its owner, then the builder would be executed. If the house was to collapse and kill the owner's son, however, then the builder's son would be executed. The aspects of trial by ordeal and harsh punishment for those who falsely accuse others of crime are also written into the law code. So while the Code of Hammurabi was extremely enlightening and significant in regard to learning more about ancient Mesopotamian culture, a lot of the law code was already an understood law of society anyway. All Hammurabi did was publish and update the law that people were living by already. And after Hammurabi, the law would be republished and updated accordingly. The Code of Hammurabi was a groundbreaking discovery, but I don't necessarily think that Hammurabi was necessarily a groundbreaking lawmaker. He just took it upon himself to establish a necessary and modern law code based on the diversity of his empire. One thing we do know is that if a slave turns to his master and tells him that he is not his master, should that slave be found guilty? Then his master is to cut off his ear. Babylonian Mathematics The first Babylonian dynasty is the home of many excavated clay tablets which demonstrate some of the first mathematical ideas. But make no mistake about it, these ideas are a lot more advanced than simple addition, subtraction and multiplication. If you recall, the only time we've tackled anything of major numerical significance was when we were talking about how the people of Mesopotamia were measuring time and using duodecimal and sexagesimal counting systems based on the numbers 12 and 60, which we can see with 12 hours in half a day and 60 minutes in an hour, for example. 
the people of old Babylonia would favour the sexagesimal counting system themselves. The Babylonians would show a very advanced expertise in their mathematics tackling subjects such as algebra and geometry to quite an advanced level. The big question would be why the Babylonians felt it was necessary to study advanced mathematics. Well, there would have been a growing pressure on bureaucracy with the development of agricultural law. We know that there would be compensation to farmers whose fields were flooded, for example, so it would be important to be able to assess the area of a field to assess its overall value. Taxation would have been in full flow by now, and especially when taxes would have to have been collected in from all the city-states. Geometric and algebraic expertise would have been important for all of these things. Although advanced mathematics can be traced to some degree back to the Sumerian early dynastic period of the early to mid 3rd millennium BCE, we can definitely see that there was more of a theoretical slant to the old Babylonian mathematics. For example, mathematics would have had to have come in handy for measuring the area of a field or the measurements of a building or construction but now we can see mathematics with no direct practical purpose. Mathematical experts appear to have been studying the nature of mathematics purely out of curiosity and leisure, and then making note of their discoveries in cuneiform on tablets. It is even possible that the Babylonians understood what we refer to as the Pythagorean theorem over a thousand years before the lifetime of the ancient Greek philosopher Pythagoras. Chronology When Hammurabi established his old Babylonian empire, Babylon would become the secular and religious capital of the empire, which escalated the city's deity to the supreme deity of the empire. Impressive buildings would have been erected in the city of Babylon. Hammurabi had done well to have established a very powerful empire with both legal and religious reform. He was a successful commander in battle and a master tactician of diplomacy. He had brought the Mesopotamian city-states to heel and gained control of the mighty empire based on Assyrian territory not to mention its Anatolian trade posts. By 1755 BCE, Hammurabi had built a very strong and mighty empire, but by now Hammurabi was becoming older and more frail, and as such would have to turn to his son, Samsu Iluna, to take on more responsibility. As Hammurabi became more and more incapable, his neighbours would become more and more interested in claiming Babylonian lands. Eventually, Hammurabi passed away in 1750 BCE. Samsu Iluna would take the throne of Babylon, but by now the realm was in danger. All of the cultural fragments of Hammurabi's empire rose up in rebellion against Samsu Iluna. Samsu Iluna was very much up for the fight 
with battle victories and even the public strangulation and subsequent execution of a captured king in Babylon. He was no pushover. However, continued rebellions caused Samsu-Iluna to be confined to the same size of empire that his father Hammurabi had inherited before all of his mighty conquests. Assyria split away from under the influence of Babylon, as did the Sumerian city-state as a united group from Ur in the south to Isin in the north. Things were reasonably and relatively peaceful after Samsu-Iluna's reign and the crown would pass down a patrilineal line of Hammurabi and Samsu-Iluna's descendants who continued to exploit the fertility that the waters of the rivers would give to the population and who would pay a lot of time and attention to the continual building of temple complexes for their deities. Eventually, the throne would pass to Samsu Ditana, who assumed the throne of Babylon in around 1625 BCE. We don't really have much evidence for constructive activity during this period. Not only was Samsu Ditana apparently not engaged much in battle, but also not engaged much in temple building, unlike his predecessors. He seemed more concerned about the construction of statues dedicated to himself, which seems unbelievable considering that there appears to be evidence of Samsu Ditana's awareness of an imminent attack according to contemporary texts. The threats would come from Anatolia and northern Mesopotamia which historically had been occupied by the Hattians and the Hurrians, which we mentioned as being to the north of the Akkadian Empire in episode 2. However, the Hattians and Hurrians appeared to have been supplanted in that region by a new Indo-European culture which had either migrated to or emerged in this area and were called the Hittites. The Hittites had slowly established themselves in many settlements before King Labana founded what could be described as the Hittite Old Kingdom in around 1664 BCE. It was the King Mershali who took the Hittite Old Kingdom throne in about 1620 BCE and had an expansionist attitude so after conquering lands around Anatolia proceeded to march 2,000 kilometres down the Euphrates River to Samsu Ditana's Babylon in 1595 BCE. There is debate about why the Hittites ventured all the way down to Babylon, but we do know that they did. When they arrived, they attacked the city of Babylon and sacked it. The Babylonian king, Samsu Ditana, was never heard of again, and the city's statue of their deity, Marduk, was removed. After Mershali and his Hittite army had destroyed Babylon, they had to withdraw, and this is what is so confusing about Mershali's actions. The fact that he had ventured so far away from the centre of his kingdom way up at Hattusha in central Anatolia, only to have to withdraw again to return to his kingdom. Babylon was left destroyed 
and not occupied. Initially, the new Sumerian Empire in the south called the Sealand Dynasty, which some years earlier had run Hammurabi's son Samsuiluna out of Sumer, came and occupied Babylon. But that did not last too long. Ultimately, it was the Kassites, a people possibly from the east, who took over the Babylonian Empire. As for Mershali of the Hittites, he returned to the centre of his kingdom in Anatolia only to be assassinated when he arrived. We will talk more about the Hittites of Anatolia next time. Thank you very much for listening to this week's podcast about the Babylonian dynasty, the first Babylonian dynasty and uh, also the major player Hammurabi there who's been introduced with his law code so we discussed that slightly, an eye for an eye, and uh, the, the origins of all of that. So uh, a very interesting episode. It's also linked us up to the Hittites of Anatolia. So we're going to start looking into that and the first Indo-Europeans. So that's quite a significant step in ancient history and something that links us to the modern age. So uh, something to be keen about for next week, the Hittites. It also links us to the Battle of Kadesh, which we're going to devote a special episode to during this ancient period of podcasts. And also it links us to the Egyptians because obviously they were the other side in the Battle of Kadesh. So um, we're going to be talking about the Egyptians, albeit briefly. Uh, Certainly the Battle of Kadesh episode is going to be introduced um, alongside the Egyptian podcast. So we're going to have to wait a month or two for those. However, uh, it's quite a uh, it's quite an interesting and action-packed period of history. So, looking forward to next week. Um, we've had very little in the way of feedback this week, so everyone's obviously been way too busy to make any comments about anything. But that's absolutely fine. No, it's, we've uh, we've got increasing amounts of listeners all the time and increasing amounts of followers on our social media pages all i would say to you is don't be afraid to drop a line don't be afraid to make a comment on the pages i'm always looking for people to interact with each other and interact with me and um, i'm always happy to reply to any of your comments so please feel free to um, comment or even criticize any of the shows or any of the material Uh, It's always interesting to discuss it and we tend to bring things forward by doing so. So don't feel shy. Put your opinions over. I want to hear them because they're just as important as anyone else's. So it's very, very valuable to share your own opinion of these stories. So that's it. I'm going to sign off for this week. Thank you very much for listening once again. And we'll look forward to next week, the Hittites. See you next time. The History of the World podcast is hosted by Audioboom. It is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Castbox, Podcast Republic, Stitcher and TuneIn. You can also find it on Deezer, Google Podcasts and Radio Public. Feel free to email the show at History of the World Podcast at mail.com. Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. <laughs>